My guest today is Molly Masters, who founded Books That Matter in 2017 while still in her second year at university studying English literature. She is hugely passionate about women's writing, feminism, and activism. Molly created this subscription box company as a way to raise up the voices of women writers and creatives, including transgender and non-binary persons, and to create a platform for social change and empowerment. Today's conversation is definitely not one to be missed. Molly's story is the definition of humble beginnings. I actually first met her at a networking event in Bristol, which she couldn't even afford to attend, but managed to hustle her way in. I immediately knew that she was special. She's my kind of girl. We talk in this conversation all about the learnings, pivots, and adventures of launching her startup, Books That Matter, thanks to a competition hosted by her university. You're definitely going to want to hear her tell how she was not only the only non-NBA student to apply, but how she was the first female winner in the history of the competition. We also go into the messy details of starting a business and how you can fill in those knowledge gaps quickly. Molly walks us through the exponential growth she's experienced since launching and throughout the pandemic, growing from her apartment room floor to an outdoor storage container to a full fulfillment center. Basically, I would pack all of the boxes up and it was just filling the corridor of my my flat, the living room. And so I decided to get a storage unit. All I could afford was an outdoor storage unit. She's gone from countless rejections and packing the boxes herself to becoming one of the biggest book subscription boxes in the United Kingdom. We also talk about recognizing the need to start building a team and what that looked like for books that matter. Spoiler alert, passion alignment is everything. Finally, Molly talks us through the biggest challenges she's faced so far. You don't want to miss this episode. Let's dive right in. Molly Masters, thank you so, so much for joining us on the Better On Yourself podcast today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure and an honor. I can't believe that it was about three or four years ago that we first met. I know. I was literally trying to do the math as I was walking to my office this morning, thinking like it was definitely pre-pandemic. We had no idea what was coming. No. You, and I, you and I were in a very similar stage where we were kind of taking a very big bet on ourselves, (laughs) hence the name of the podcast, and really turning some of our passions and side hustles into our main hustle. So I wonder, before we get to that day when we met, I wonder, can you tell me uh, a little bit about the foundational Molly? Like, what was your very first job ever? What did you think you were going to be when you were a little girl? Like, what were your original dreams? (laughs) Um, So I've always, unsurprisingly, looking at the business I run now, loved books um so my first proper job I had waitressing jobs here and there but my first proper job um I worked part-time alongside my studies I worked at WH Smith which is like a British kind of like news agents and bookshop so I was in my element um <laughs> and I grew up in quite like a sleepy town in Dorset so whenever people weren't coming in I was kind of paid to read books um so I was having a great time and I think that kind of even though I was alongside my studies, was such a great way to keep my love of reading going. And I really got to know all of the authors that we had. And yeah, it was just, it was wonderful. Um, but then obviously went to uni and studied English literature. And during that time, I was kind of dabbling in tutoring and academia um, and trying out all sorts. Um, but when I was younger, I just really loved writing and reading. So I've always wanted and still do want to be a writer um but this has been such a wonderful way to like 
kind of explore the publishing world and really get underneath how women break into um yeah the publishing canon so inevitably my life has ended up being about books but I'm so happy about that <laughs> I love it this this is why you and I are soulmates honestly because I've been obsessed with books from the beginning my original plan a dream was to be a professor so oh, writing was always kind of part of my vision I definitely want to pick your brain about everything about the publishing industry. Having just published my very first book, I have found this whole experience to be so bewildering and um, so much more complex and antiquated than I expected. Yes. Right? Oh, gosh, it just blows my mind when you go. It just feels like such a crazy thing that we have and we haven't. I mean, women as a whole been in the workforce for what feels like a long time. But these industries are dinosaurs in the way that they are acted and like act out and the way that they're built and they're not built for women and it just shows it shows in every every way and every contract that you sign and every email that says dear sirs it's just (laughs) yeah everything so yeah happy happy to run a rave about the publishing industry it's getting better but it definitely needs some work it's in it unfathomable to me that they survive given this business model now I have to say I'm very grateful for my publishing team at HarperCollins. They're incredible. My editors were spectacular. They really helped me hone my narrative in in a way that it really needed. And I I feel like it's so much better off for their expertise. But the the publishing part of it, like how we actually get books from here to there, or like all of that is just ripe for disruption. If anyone wants to disrupt a billion dollar industry, Publishing is right for it. Yes, absolutely. Oh, sorry, my cat has decided to join us. I love it. Your cat is um, Instagram famous, so I feel very honored that she's <laughs> making an appearance on the podcast. <laughs> she's all. She is literally. She's disrupting publishing in a non-productive way. <laughs> she's disrupting my work. I love it. I love it when she um, makes cameo appearances when you're doing your unboxing videos. I love it. <laughs> so embarrassed every time she does that and like the reality of it is that I think there's no point Instagram being shiny it's got to be real and most of the time she's there (laughs) tearing things apart but I think that's one of the things that um why you have such high engagement and highly um what's the word I'm looking for like um just a really authentic following for your work, which we'll get into. But I see that through your Instagram community. I think it's that. It's because you don't pretend everything's perfect or you have all the answers. You're kind of letting us be part of your journey and learning with you as you go. So I, I love that. And I, oh, I thank you. Yeah. I think, our, I think our that's really that for us also. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. I think it's it's really important. And I think when I was starting out, I was following lots of businesses and kind of female founders and there was a real line between the ones that made you feel empowered and the ones that made you feel insecure um and I think that line was always authenticity and perhaps looking at a model which does look kind of you know somebody's built something that's really shiny and perfect all the time and successful it's because they're showing more of a photo album of all of their great bits um whereas sometimes seeing somebody's journey and the messy parts just kind of reinforces it can still be empowering it can be reinforcing the fact that we're all human and things do go wrong and you know it it, I think that's just it's humanizing and we need more of it I couldn't agree more and I think I was struck by that with you from the moment we met across this journey until now just your passion comes through and you're unafraid of 
I don't know, doing things differently or figuring things out as you go because you're so aligned on your mission and it clearly pulls you forward. So maybe we go back to that day. Let's start with like, I clearly remember the day we met, but I'm curious of your side of the story. Um, take me back to the day we met and then um, let's jump into what it's been like for you as, as the founder. Um, yes. Oh my gosh. It just feels like so long ago. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it feels, I, I don't know. I feel like the same person, but a different person as well. Um, I totally. think it was probably three or four years ago. Yeah. I'll say three, because I just moved to Bristol. And I remember trying to like put my neck out on the line and try and like meet some people and network. And I just moved from Brighton where I was studying. Um, and I'd got, um, I'd won a competition to start up Books That Matter. So as a business, she was very small and very like at her at the start of her journey. Um, I was still working. I was working at a bath bomb shop. So I was definitely, I was juggling a lot. And I remember yeah. taking the time off of work um, because I saw this amazing event. And I was so grateful because the team who were running it, and obviously it was your event, you were having a brunch with um, some of the magazine editors and young business people in Bristol and then talking at the business center. Um, and at the time I couldn't afford the ticket. I like couldn't afford my rent. <laughs> and I've emailed them and I said, like, it was, I've always kind of grown up. Um, my auntie always used to tell me that if you don't ask, you don't get. And I've always felt like you can really tread that line of being like, I didn't want to be out of like speak out of turn, but I also thought it would just be such a valuable networking opportunity. And um, yeah, so I remember emailing and writing out like an absolute essay and just being like, I really, really want to go. And just couldn't afford the ticket and they were so lovely. And that's when they invited me to the breakfast as well. So I remember like rocking up at like seven o'clock in the morning. It was early. Yeah. yeah, it was so early. And then we all had breakfast together and I met some amazing people. I can't remember what the name of that magazine was. I can't there were loads either, actually. It was posted at that magazine, but I can't remember, but it was, um, they were all really lovely. And many people I still like have kept in touch with now. Me too. Um, it's crazy. And I remember us just all talking about um, kind of like you were saying about this podcast, like professional lives, owning businesses, like um, putting yourself out there and kind of stepping into discomfort. And yeah, it was wonderful. And then we went, obviously, you did your amazing talk. I remember feeling really kind of small. I remember being in that oh. room and like not really knowing. I didn't know anybody. Everyone seemed to know everyone. And it was my first networking thing. And I remember like scuttling off to the toilets and just like, waiting until the talk started um which was something I used to do so regularly but now I just don't um and it's just one of those things where you kind of grow into networking it's not easy or natural for anybody um but yeah I remember sitting in the audience of your talk taking copious notes just thinking you were amazing and then like coming up and talking to you afterwards and then we connected and we had a Skype call during the pandemic I think yeah, that was during the pandemic yeah, yeah just to catch up and yeah I think we just kind of stayed connected on LinkedIn and social media ever since it's just been so lovely so I'm so grateful to just like have you kind of cheerleading books that matter and being a wonderful influence so I could not be prouder of you I remember that day so clearly largely because of I'm I was curious if you would highlight the same things I would have when telling that story and it's like word for word what I would have said so I just <laughs> love that <laughs> because one of the things that struck me the most was you were like look I am I've heard I don't have infinite runway, right? You had won this prize to start books that matter, but that didn't mean you had like 
all this cash you you were it just struck me immediately that you would share with me of like look this is a stretch for me i'm not here because this is comfortable for me and i even had to ask if they would waive the registration fee and i've never forgotten that because I'm not a naturally bold person either. And I have to like really still today, like even when I'm inviting people to come on the podcast, I'm still sometimes get a little like, okay, you know, you have to be, yeah. brave. you have to take a risk and put your neck out there and invite someone who might say no and realize it's not the end of the world if, if they yeah. say no, but you don't get it if you don't ask. Um, I just love that. And I just was so struck by you immediately. You know, we, you were so thoughtful you shared with me some of your takeaways, which meant a lot to me because I was still at Google at the time, I think, or had just yeah, you left. Are. I was. Okay. So that means it was like probably three and a half, almost four years ago that we met. Yeah. So it was, you and I were very much in this uprooting stages of our lives. And I just felt like bonded around that of like, we're, we're people, we are women who go after our passions and want to create a life of adventure. And even if we feel nervous and uncomfortable, we're going to do it anyway. That, that yeah. <laughs> no, it's just it it was it was a really fundamental day for me, I felt, because it was that first time that I'd really stepped into like yeah, like networking, but also just felt like I was in the presence of somebody so incredible and inspiring. Oh. And I just feel so like humbled that we've been able to keep in touch. And yeah, it just felt like a real turning point. Like I remember like rocking up and just feeling like I just kind of had to step into that kind of uncomfortable place but it was also really grounding for me because I realized that even if it does feel uncomfortable to ask people for a favor or ask for help um that people like do want to offer it um and yeah no it's just it was wonderful and to have kept in touch has just been amazing so thank it's, you <laughs> oh I feel so honored um to be in touch with you because I just, please remember me when you're famous is how I feel because I <laughs> what you built is huge. So let's get into the details of it. Um, for those who aren't yet familiar, familiar with books that matter, walk us through that. Tell us a little bit of the, maybe the original vision. I don't know if that's pivoted over time, but you founded it back in 2017 and not knowing that the pandemic was coming. So there has been some major disruptions and lessons learned along the way, but maybe let's start with the original vision um, and where you were at way back then when we first met. Because the evolution has just been thrilling to watch. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's it's been it's been really crazy, and a lot of the time I do describe it as a runaway train. I'm I'm, I'm merely a passenger. I don't really. <laughs> I just think that, and that's often the way with a lot of things that I find that like books and publishing. It's such a roller coaster of a place, but um, the community and the way that things kind of pick up and thrive especially when women are involved it just is so magical um so I at the time I was I was studying and I was studying English literature um and I kind of got into this place where kind of un it was unintentional really I just started studying loads and loads of women and it kind of just gathered in front of me that my curriculum that I'd chosen for myself for my degree was all of these amazing female writers primarily because everyone else had heard of them who was in my classes and had gone to kind of private school or had um, parents who were in publishing or whatever and they were studying literature too they had all heard of them um, but it was the first time that I was encountering people like Virginia Woolf, Jamaica Kincaid, these really like fundamental feminist writers and even if you don't want to see them as feminist writers just writers who happen to be women right. um, I hadn't heard of them before because the curriculum for um, 
kind of not normal school but like what's the opposite of public school sorry this is like completely throwing me um public and private right so there's yeah just like pub I don't know if we use the word public in England but yeah just like normal secondary schools mm-hmm. it was all Shakespeare Chaucer all the all of the dudes yeah. um, <laughs> I'd obviously loved enough for it to get me to a degree level but it was just a different experience altogether reading the stories of these women yeah. and really getting a handle on all the different lives that women lead um because I think it was the first time that I'd read books where I really did feel like there was a part of me in those stories and it wasn't just watching a male protagonist go off and you know adventure it was mm-hmm. it was just amazing and obviously I could just switch on about that for ages mm-hmm. um but I wanted to go into academia and I did some studies during my summer I was like paid to stay at the university and research um women's reproductive rights and dystopian literature so I was like doing a lot about The Handmaid's Tale and um, these amazing books Um, but it turned out that obviously as you know I was a working class student at the time the first in my family to go to uni the government had just scrapped all the grants so the third like end of second and third year of my uni were quite hard I was like juggling two jobs um, and it just didn't seem feasible um, both financially and mentally to be able to juggle something full-time to be able to do a master's and then a PhD so the university um like one of my professors had kind of said like a PhD would be accepted and was a bit of a given but you had to pay for the master's first and I just felt like I couldn't do it financially um I was already struggling a little bit with kind of having to do two jobs and full-time study it was just a lot and I think then I felt that my dream of doing that was kind of coming to an end and it felt very bewildering and very uncomfortable um and then I just felt like taking that energy of being excited about all these female writers and I thought about all of the other people especially like friends and people that I knew back home who didn't have that opportunity to go to university I was really lucky to go to one that offered um first generation scholarship schemes so kind of my first year was paid for and they really helped you out and it was a wonderful, really inclusive place for people from all sorts of backgrounds. Um, but I did think, how are people going to access this if they don't have that? Yeah. And what's going to make it exciting? And this kind of community where you could discuss things. And I think the first thing that came into my head for Books That Matter was a blog, because I'd kind of grown up in the you know, the era of Zoella and YouTubers and thought that that would be a really good avenue. But I felt like there needed to be something a little bit more there. Um and just before I kind of left university and was coming up to my graduation, I did an internship at Cosmopolitan. Um, so I worked there for um, a few weeks and was working on accounts like Glossybox and Birchbox and was introduced to the subscription box model. Um, yeah. I'm not much of a makeup person, not wearing any makeup right now. So it didn't really actually like appeal to me that I would have a makeup subscription but I did chat with a couple of the girls at the desks there and was like, I'd love this for books. And we all agreed that like there were certainly some out there, but none big enough that were actually kind of like making big strides in the publishing industry and kind of changing the game. And obviously those makeup subscription boxes do so well and they really yeah. do. Um, they really do captivate people. Um, and so I kind of got a bit excited about it. And so when I went back to finish off my degree, um, like that last summer of third year, um, there was a business competition that was opened up to the people at the business school. Um, so not dissimilar to the way that I approached you, I approached them and I was like, I didn't study business, but I have an idea. Can I join in? And um, they said, yes. So I pitched the idea for Books That Matter and said like, I think it could be kind of a community and a subscription box and a way to access all of these female writers. 
Um, and then fast forward, I entered the competition. We had to do seminars and proposals and pitches and then became the first female winner of the prize and started up the business. And it's kind of just been I love yeah, it. going ever since. And it's been I, amazing. I wish our podcast listeners could see how big of a smile I have on my face and listening to that story. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm just like nodding my head over and over again. One, just the passion and the joy comes like beaming out of your face when you talk about books that matter. And I always look for that in startup founders. Um, I know that to me is the biggest indicator of success when someone is so passion aligned with their work. Because goodness knows, and we'll get into the details, how hard it is to do what you've done. <laughs> you need to have something driving you because if all of there is, is money or investment, no. it, oh no, that's not enough. I not think enough. Going into business for the money, you can't do it for the money. You cannot. <laughs> Especially not in the early days. <laughs> no, do not be a startup founder for the money. It just does not work out. But I really love the way you described. Like I too never went to a private school of any kind from you know five years all the way through my PhD. It was public universities. I I too found gaps in my education, and um, but I love that both of us leaned into it. We're like, okay, the, well, there's a hole here that maybe I can fill, or my program, I can be a unique voice. Um, and I too worked two jobs while in university. I worked at the Susalo Library before I knew that I had a dust mite allergy. So that didn't work out very well. <laughs> and um, I also worked at the European Union Center all while studying full time during undergrad. My parents were really kind, helped me out, but I still needed to supplement pretty heavily. Yeah. Um, so I think there's something wonderful that happens when you learn to make the most out of an opportunity because it's such a sacrifice to be there. Like every day you have to decide yes. again, like, this is worth it. I'm going to work really hard because this matters to me. Yeah. Um, and I like that you created your, so your first internship um, at Cosmopolitan wasn't necessarily aligned to your passions, but you learned something so vital that became the seed of an idea that has just blown up in the most beautiful, incredible way. Yeah. And bless you for like being bold enough to enter a business school competition instead of self-opting out and then killing it and becoming the first female leader, a winner. I love that. I just thought it was hilarious. Like after the reality and the joy had set in, I just thought all of these, all of these people who actually studied business, like I did do business at GCSE, but I basically ended up spending all of my free time reading business books in the library alongside writing my dissertation. Cause I was like, I do need to like, and I, like you said, it's almost you feel like you step into these spaces and you know how much you have to prove to be there because you've had to sacrifice so much yes, time and yes. money. And so I was like, I don't want to insult all these people who genuinely are like studying business, but it also wasn't, it was proof to me that even though in the first few months I did feel really uncomfortable, like I wasn't supposed to be there. I didn't know it as much mm. as those other people. You don't have, you don't have to because everybody's learning on the go and you can't learn running a business. You can learn the fundamentals at any point, but the journey of running a business is always going to be different to what a textbook is going to tell you. So I probably would have been helpful to have studied business if I needed to, but I didn't, I've never felt at some point that a business degree was what would have landed me books that matter. I think the whole messy journey to getting there was, was what kind of opened that door for me. Couldn't agree more. Let's get into the messy bit. So you win, <laughs> you win the competition. You've got this incredible idea to do a subscription model for your business. You Did you know from day one, it was going to be around feminist literature? That was part of yes. the process? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I so kind you, of knew that it, oh, sorry. Oh, I, um, I just knew that it had to be based on that model or like that 
that moment that I found that there's just as soon as I knew there was something there about why haven't I learned about these women before where have they been they've not been hiding certainly they are published but it was getting into that why are they not on the shelves why are we not talking about them why is it a section that says women's literature and yeah I, I just tried to unpick that and that's when all the kind of aforementioned ugliness of the publishing world came at me and I was just like no something needs there needs to be a platform for them and certainly I don't want books matter to be the only one um, but that's kind of where I wanted to start um, obviously that was better with opposition and I don't think that there are there are obviously very worthy male writers but there just needs to be the space for women and I'm so glad that I have one and that there are so many different versions like in the business world and sport and it just it, it is needed um so yeah could talk about that forever but I won't just now <laughs> definitely could we, we need to have we need to a face-to-face reunion as soon as possible I'd love to hear <laughs> all the details of that that's coming up um, but I also one thing that so inspires me about you and I think this is why another reason why we're kindred spirits is you didn't wait to be invited to the table and you didn't wait for there to be a vacancy at the table which I in I don't know how you came to this realization so early in your career it took me like 20 years it took, eventually I realized there is never a vacancy. You have to build and then drag your own chair up to that table and then own it when you feel out of place for like a long time. Yeah, <laughs> you know? absolutely. And I think sometimes some of the most disappointing things are the ones that you have to use as catalyst. I remember doing different internships and experiences in publishing and realizing that I wasn't going to be able to create fundamental change if I'm an intern because the working class women the other minorities you know people they're they're hiring diversely at the bottom but not at the top and you're not making decisions and so I was like I'm not going to be able to make a difference here I'm not choosing authors I'm not reading manuscripts and um, I learned really quickly that it wasn't going to be a place for fundamental change and that's something that we talk about a lot within books that matter as well because I think there does need to be so much work in that kind of the hiring um like kind of spectrum within publishing because diversity is great if you are using it correctly but if you're using it kind of as a tick box you're not going to be creating any change because you're not actually using people's lived experiences to impact the decisions that you're making and so I realized pretty early on that working in publishing was not going to make a difference in publishing for what I wanted to do. Right. right. I just, I think there's so much wisdom in that observation that you made of, um, and it's so obvious to me why you've been so successful is because you weren't focused on this like subscription model because of, you know, you don't have overhead. It wasn't about the business model. It was about where's my biggest opportunity for impact and change. And that was the motivator for you to be like, I need to be at the top. I need that title of founder and CEO so I can be making those types of substantive decisions and making change in my community, adding something to discussion that won't be there unless I'm a a bigger voice. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that especially last year, being seeing that noticeable change in like, I remember seeing a headline of a book that we had, um, we put into reprint for one of our boxes and it was charting again and it was in the bookseller. And I was like, it was kind of the first time that had happened that somebody would seen a significant difference in this particular book being bought. And I just thought that was like, that was amazing. I was like, I can die happy now because we've made it, we've put this woman writer back on the charts along with loads of other kind of catalysts for her work being read again. But I was like, that was us. Like we did that. And it's been incredible 
to just be able to do that and to be able to put more women writers on the shelves and you know get people talking about them so seeing that noticeable change after four years it, it it does it does come but it was just it just felt like that kind of concrete proof that it's working and it does have a difference it does make a difference in the publishing world and to okay. the readers obviously <laughs> I that's incredible uh, not only are you adding to the conversation but you're highlighting you're moving people literally in the charts into that into that spotlight Hi there. I just wanted to take a quick break from this fascinating conversation to invite you to buy my book, Bet on Yourself. It's available wherever you like to buy books. In Bet on Yourself, I'll take you on a deep dive into the best practices I collected by watching the exceptional careers of my CEO mentors, including Jeff Bezos, Marissa Meyer, and Eric Schmidt. I also share stories of what it was like to work at Amazon and Google during the foundational years of those companies and the internet. I use my own career as a case study for how to translate the habits of these super performers into any career at any stage and within any industry. I also attempt to answer the question of why all three of these celebrity CEOs chose to partner with me in order to fulfill their most ambitious goals and how I am now going to do the same for you. While these stories are fun and fascinating, what I hope for most is that you will walk away not only inspired, but with a playbook for how you can take action, recover from setbacks, and create your own wild adventures and joy-filled success stories, and a work life centered around your personal mission and values. Okay, let's get back to the podcast interview and more examples of how taking even seemingly small bets on yourself can lead to extraordinary results. But it took a while for you to build your spotlight. I mean, you're, you now are capable of changing lives and launching careers. Um, for writers. Take us back to that original few first few subscription boxes. How did you curate your collection? What was it like to try and figure out the distribution model? Goodness knows, I've learned a lot about that over the last year, and it's bewildering working the way that publishers work. So walk me through those first few boxes and some of the things that I'm sure you learned the hard way. Yeah, so the first thing that I remember doing to kind of build Books That Matter before I um, won the competition was kind of getting these almost like PR, um, like soft launching boxes out. And I remember literally using Mod Podge, which I know is so big in America. And <laughs> I was literally cutting out these pictures and this like mock-up logo and like Mod Podging it onto boxes while watching Notting Hill in my basement room at uni. And I was like, I was like, I need to crack a window. There's like so much Mod Podge fume in here. Like, um, but I did it. And I think I'm, I've basically used some of the funding at, I think when you get to a certain level in the competition that I entered, we got about a hundred pounds. And so I used it all for these books and these supplies and then sent them out to journalists and people that I knew I would want connections with because getting into publishing is really difficult as you probably know, yeah. um, not even just as a writer, but they're really picky about who they stock and it's definitely a who you know game. Mm. Um, and so I was like, I'm going to try and try and get off, start, get the ground running and, I spoke to some really lovely small businesses. Part of the boxes is that every month we have a book alongside three or four gifts. So these wonderful small businesses gave me some stuff at cost price to put in there and kind of create a mock-up of the experience. And so then later when I launched, after I'd sent those out, I kind of went back to those people, um, made some bookings for the London Book Fair and actually had face-to-face -face meetings with these people saying like, you know that crappy little thing that I sent you like a month ago that's like a real thing now um, so I like 
showed them the real thing, the boxes that I'd had made and kind of was just, you basically have to pitch yourself to be able to have an account with some of these publishers. Some of the smaller ones, it's a different story, but um, the big players, um, they don't always stock to everybody. And it was, it was really difficult trying to create and maintain those connections and get my foot in the door. And as you know, from like the earlier story, putting myself out there was, it was, I used to be absolutely terrified. And I remember like finding a little space. It was in the, um, oh, what's the called? The Olympia in London is where they hold the London Book Fair. And they have these little conference rooms at the top where they don't really ever get used. And I remember just sitting there, like I literally just sat down on the floor and I was like so overwhelmed and really anxious. And I was like, I had like 17 other meetings that day. And I was kind of just getting a bit tired of like pitching myself over and over. And it was the rejection was kind of stifling because there were some people who I mean I did switch back to brown hair but at the same at that time I had pink hair as well and I just thought <laughs> I don't even know if I'm coming across in the right way like people were just like no like you're too small or like the business you know come back to us when you've got some business figures and you're that registered and I was like all of this was so new to me um and I just I felt quite unprepared but there were a few publishers who really took a chance and like were really lovely. One of them being HarperCollins Fourth Estate, um, which they, they, yeah, they were they are so lovely. And um, Liv Marsden from the Fourth Estate team, she basically made this connection with me and said that on the first box, like she really loved the idea. And Fourth Estate specifically published female authors, um, and so she said they would give us a special rate for our first box to like get us in the door. And it was incredible and I honestly didn't know some of the prices that we were getting back because it was such small quantities I was like how am I even going to make this work because like the startup cost is going to be crazy but they were like here's a special deal they sent the book the books to my flat I pulled them up three flights of stairs there's no lift I was exhausted (laughs) and then I it was getting them to the top and then realizing that at some point I'm gonna have to take them back down to be posted (laughs) do I try and create like a little basket scenario where I like take them down one by one down the window (laughs) so that first like box I curated it we had um purple hibiscus by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie um some lovely tote bags a little like books that matter pin I was so proud of like the first logo it's so different now but it was really lovely and we did pre-orders that sold out in like 30 minutes and it was just crazy I remember like the I had my notifications on on my phone and seeing them all come through and like being in floods of tears it was it was amazing and then I packed all the boxes with my parents in my flat and then drove them off in my Volkswagen Polo to the post office and yeah, things just went from there. I literally have goosebumps right now, literally, like <laughs> listening to that story because this is everything that I coach CEOs and founders to be, to be un- unafraid of massive amounts of rejection, to be sitting there being like, oh, uh, yeah, I guess I do need to get that registered or I, I guess I need a business card logo. I remember when I was um, setting up, because I'm an American transplant into Europe, so, you know, I don't know. There was a lot of stuff I didn't know about how businesses run in Europe versus in, in the in yeah. same thing. Like I remember one of my first clients who took a chance on me was like, okay, send me an invoice. And I was like, oh no, like I didn't even have a template. Yeah. For, like, what does that look like? No. no, it's, it's those little things that do actually feel really bewildering. Once you've done it, it once, it's not bad, but it's like, oh, what's that? <laughs> exactly. I just love that you sat there, you showed up you were undeterred by those bigger publishers who were like, come back when you're fancy and important. 
Um, because you're like, how am I supposed to get there if you don't take a chance on me? But you do yes. find those who see your vision, who bet on you early and make it possible. And then obviously the fact that your first you know, trial box sold out in pre-sale shows that you are filling a need that so many readers have in, in wanting to explore this literature in, in any way. So I just think it's incredible. So oh, you're hauling you. boxes up and down the stairs yourself. And then eventually, I imagine I, fairly soon, it must outscale your apartment, right? At yeah. some point, you're like, okay, we need a warehouse. So the what first, was that growth curve like? Yeah, the first month was literally like, I think once I had the flat pack boxes and I was putting them all together, I remember one of my first, like, if I look back on that, I thought that my first failure ultimately was I didn't actually know how to export things to a CSV file. I was manually typing up all of the addresses into stickers for them to be sent off to the Royal Mail. And then I look at the thing we have now, it's like, click, click, done. <laughs> and, like, and I was like, I would spend hours, I'd be watching Jane the Virgin or something on the yeah. CW and I'd be typing them all out in the evening. And I was like, oh, but you, those little hours of needless work, those, they do just they develop you. And I was like, you know, it was that early stage resilience and just making mistakes. But basically I would pack all of the boxes up and it was just filling the corridor of my, my flat, the living room. And so I decided to get a storage unit. Um, all I could afford was an outdoor storage unit. Um, <laughs> so I signed on for the lease in early, I think it was like August time didn't think about the winter. And um, so there was some very, very cold afternoons with my mum <laughs> and some of my lovely friends when I was working at Lush, they would come and help out. Um, and we'd pack boxes. We'd have, if the wind kind of took the doors open, we'd have crepe paper flying out the doors. Um, there would be people there with like their U-Hauls just trying to move from the house. And I would be like, yeah, this is where I like operate my business from. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, but it was one of those things where I, I remember being so proud. And like, I look back on that now and I'm like, I would do it all again. Like I would, I, there's no part of me that wouldn't sit in a cold, um, poorly lit, no electricity outdoor storage unit and pack those boxes. Cause at the time it was everything because I was still going from, I drive from my shift at Lush and then drive straight there. And I was excited to pack those boxes. Um, and it was really, yeah, it was, it was so fun until it wasn't. I remember <laughs> when, um, we were kind of packing, we got to about 500 and, um, wow we didn't have any electricity and I got a lantern from Poundland, which I've kept. I still have it. Cause I was like, I have to have this like really terrible lantern for memories. Yes. And I realized that if I couldn't see what I was packing because of packing so late at night, then I needed somewhere with electricity. <laughs> um, <laughs> so then I got an office. Um, at the time I was feeling really stressed out by my job. Um, and that was the time when, you know, getting cheesy referring to the podcast title, I felt like I really needed to bet on myself. I didn't have the money to pay myself, but I was like, I need to go full time with the business because it's not getting, it wasn't, it was getting my full attention, but I didn't have the energy because it was getting to that around that time. So I got the storage unit and it got to December and like Christmas and retail is terrifying and very stressful. Um, and that was the time when I was like, I just don't think that I can do Christmas and retail and run my business. And you know, it was terrifying, but I decided to just take the leap. I got myself a really small office and a little Ikea desk and some shelves. And I spent my time like full time packing the boxes and working from there. And um, it was really lovely. I love that little office. Um, I really like I, I found very soon that it was quite lonely. So I decided to work from a co-working space. 
but essentially from what happened there was using that office for about I'd say about six to eight months and then um oh gosh it seems like yesterday but it was basically like two Septembers ago I um got a warehouse and like a fulfillment center and that just would change the game because I was spending so much time in the business rather than on the business um because those it would usually just take a couple of days to pack boxes but then it was a week and then it was two weeks and then it was well two weeks packing but then it was two weeks sorting the stock and like I was like I need to there are professionals who are much better at this than (laughs) I am um and yeah so then I I did that and moved to a co-working space and that balance finally felt like it was struck and that my job was like founder and working with all of these amazing business owners and kind of getting time to work on the business and the vision and the big picture rather than doing the box packing but all of that was so fundamental I just wouldn't have changed a thing no me too I'm just nodding 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 so much of that relates to my own story as well and a big part of my evolution is I realized that me being a business of one I was holding myself back and it sounds like you were at that point, you needed to outsource to professionals who had systems in place for putting, mm. putting together these boxes and shipping it. But I imagine now you've also had to bring on a team. So yeah. at what stage did you bring on a team and how do you choose these teammates? Because I think what you've built, while I don't know your team, I can see from the outside that you all are so aligned because it just appear seamless on the outside although I'm sure you have days where it doesn't feel that way still (laughs) um it's it's been amazing and in such a weird way I'm I'm not really that kind of person who's like you know the universe law attraction things like that but I feel like every single person oh sorry I've got a hiccup (laughs) every single person that's on my team really did choose me and books that matter it was it was so weird um, because I actually did a couple of like student led events in Bristol um, to kind of, we, the following was building and I realized that actually now I had a little bit more time on my hands without the fulfillment center. Cause I did at first hand it all over. I thought, what the hell do I do with all this time? I was like, <laughs> I've got too much free time. And I was worried. I was like, am I doing something wrong? Because you, you soon fill it. But um, I decided to do a couple of events and, it attracted a lot of students who were studying literature and um, it was, we did some like books and cocktail events with Bird and Blend. Um, and one of the people who'd like heard about them through a um, university society was Izzy, who has now worked with me for two years. And basically she pestered me on LinkedIn um, until I hired her. She just was like, love the business. She would always send me links of things that I might like. We met for a coffee and um, I just remember her being so lovely and she was really like, she was a bit quiet, like so different to the Izzy that I know now. <laughs> and um, we were talking about books for ages and then we arranged a second meeting. Um, and I always remember she was, she said that she just wishes she wore something different because I hold it over her head. She wore a Princess of Genovia t-shirt, like a, um, <laughs> it was amazing. And I was just like, I just, I really like people who are real. And I was like, you know, don't, don't come in like, you know just a plain shirt or whatever you think somebody else would want like I, I just felt a lot more of her character shine through on that second meeting and before we knew it we were curating boxes together and she basically went from being freelance uh, well so she was unpaid just as an intern for a while because I didn't have any money then we were still on about 500 subscribers a month and then very quickly turned into a paid role and she was working part-time and then freelance and now she's full-time um but my first proper hire beyond that as well was um an operations manager so I worked with a lovely um, woman called Hannah 
um, for about a year and then she's moved on to work at a lovely interiors company that's her passion she was really great with the operation side of things and she really showed me a lot of the other things that she's been able to do so I hired her through a like a female founders group we met online and um, she'd worked in operations for people like ASOS so she really showed me the ropes of what operations and um, these kind of like fundamental processes can look like Um, and then funnily enough I went back to the innovation center which was where I got my um, grant funding from that competition and as Hannah was leaving um, I was kind of reacquainted with an old friend from uni Eva who we kind of just missed each other in a couple of like seminars and stuff we would have been great friends we never had any classes together Um, and I was like there's this role coming up and I just seemed to think that you'd be really good at it because she does operations and loads of organizational stuff at the um, innovation center she'd done that straight out of uni and she was working with loads of startups um, and loads of businesses Um, and she basically just handed in her notice like same day and was like yeah I'll come and work for you it was amazing it was so wonderful and she was just basically like can we get a contract by the end of the week I was like yeah sure Um, I really didn't expect her to say yes but I remember her being really passionate about books and she'd obviously worked with loads of startups and she was very like she'd won like awards with all of these other startups that she'd worked with and made an impact with and yeah it was just crazy because she was like I'd love to work with you and I was like really (laughs) (laughs) so yeah and that's so now that's the core team um and there's Afsana who I met we worked at Lush together and she works um in the operations team with Eva now and it's just lovely I feel so lucky to have them oh for for startup founders or those who are thinking about turning your side hustle into main hustle, this is the gold standard of how you hire, especially early employees. And this is a mistake I also see a lot of my consulting clients who come to me because they come when they have amazing growth at scale. Uh, all the things that used to work when they were a five-person team are now breaking because it doesn't the same mm-hmm. work at scale, which I'd love your thoughts on. But the mistake I see early on is when you have this astronomical growth, some people make the mistake of just filling the seats And what I hear from you and I want all our listeners to take away from is that passion alignment is everything, especially Mm -hmm. because that those early employees are, they become your culture. It doesn't matter what you say or what you put on your letterhead or your lobby wall, that is your culture. And just to have a team that's so aligned with the mission of what you're doing, that works so seamlessly, that each bring their expertise. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like an attitude of like, we're just going to figure this out, right? I know it's yeah. not going to be perfect. It's going to be a little bit crazy, but I care so much about what we're doing that I'm all in. I'll just yeah. take a chance. Yeah. It is. And I know working for a startup isn't for everyone. And I think we've always kind of colloquially called it the vibe check. If I <laughs> feel like I'm going to hire somebody, I want them to be on a call or sat at the table with the rest of my team because the gut feeling is real. And there's sometimes when I've not listened to it and I've been like, well, on paper, this person is really qualified. We want bums on seats. We need somebody to fill this role. Um, it hasn't worked out. There have been times when I've, and I, oh, the first time I had to let someone go, I was in bits. And it's just the fact that like, I think when you're in a, when you're in a startup, it's all very human and you've put a lot of emotion into your vision. And that also goes into your team um, because it also feels like you're kind of handing over your baby to someone. Yeah. And the first time that that wasn't working out, I felt really protective over my business um, but also felt really terrible as a person just having to let someone go. But um, that's when I kind of, yeah, like I feel like that girl scuttling off to the toilets again when I was coming to your talk because I, it makes you feel about 16. I don't know if you feel the same, but oh my I hate having those difficult conversations with people, but you just, 
have to and it's one of those things where you just have to kind of like take a deep breath and it's like this is I've worked so hard for this that sometimes things just don't work out and it's better to just tell someone truthfully than to put loads of energy into something that's not going to work because I found that that's what I was doing I was so avoiding trying to not to let someone go because I felt like I'd failed them but I just felt like the passion wasn't there for them and it was showing in the way that they were working and so sometimes you bring people in as a team member and on paper they look like a great fit but there's just something missing I couldn't agree more. I, you made, you reminded me of something that Eric Schmidt used to say when I worked for him at Google, where he said, he gets asked the question a lot, like what's the biggest mistake you've made in your career? If you could go back and tell younger Eric something. And his answer was always the same. He always said, hire slow, fire fast. Um, mm. Because it's the nicest thing you can do, even though it never gets easier. It always, oh my gosh, for me, it's the hardest conversation to have. But when I step back from it and remove the emotion of it, it's true because we're setting them free to do something that is more aligned with them. And I love yeah. that you pointed out the startup culture is not for everyone. No. It's crazy. That's why I'm glad that you hire first and foremost for passion alignment because gosh, the hours are long, the risks are large, <laughs> you know, the, the pressure yeah. is real. And if you are not fully aligned with that, that's not a place where uh, an, a misalignment, that person's not going to be happy. Uh, so no. the sooner we can recognize some mistakes, learn from that mm -hmm. and move forward and set people free to find their passion alignment is in the best interest of everyone. But gosh, it's hard. It's really hard. You basically need to have and you can't have carbon copies of yourself. But the people that you employ, especially the ones that are going to be closest to you and you're like you're investing in them. The first, like those people kind of need to share your passion for the business in its entirety. Like I remember Izzy's growth from what she started doing to what she does now I just couldn't be prouder of her and I've like really seen her grow and I just feel like a really proud mother <laughs> she's just <laughs> incredible and she's such an amazing asset to the team but I remember feeling like that startup culture isn't for everyone feeling when we were in London at the women's prize events this year and it was the first post-covid events we'd um, been invited to these like really kind of very glamorous author filled um events and I had a family emergency and I had to go home it was a really difficult decision and Izzy bless her she's 20 um and this is her first job and she's she was very new to being full, fully employed and I was like you can go home like it's okay I don't expect you to really be able to take over what I'm meant to be doing here which was speaking networking talking to authors all of the big names I mean for some reason Stanley Tucci was there I was like how did I miss out on that um oh, I love him he's got I a know. new book that just came out yeah yeah I know it was it was amazing but I I was only there for a really small part of it but Izzy just kind of like pulled herself together and she was like no I'm doing this and she stayed for the whole evening and she handed out like business cards and she just just made me so proud because it was again that passion that she was like I'm doing this for the business. It's not just your job. You clock in, you clock out. It was like, I'm doing this for a cause that I really care about. And it's kind of like her baby too. So it just, it felt amazing. She definitely did have that option to go. And like, you know, if I wasn't going to be there as a team, then it wouldn't, it, I felt like it wouldn't make sense. Um, but she was more than happy to do it. And so she's kind of an asset to like how startup culture does work for some people, but it's not everybody's cup of tea. And I can oh. see why it wouldn't be because that's an immense pressure to be like, okay, we're going to go in here together and we've got a strategy and networking. And then I'm like, I'm out. <laughs> go. But I love you absolutely hired well and you have employees that you can trust. One, I hear that you trusted her to tell you the truth. She felt not quite up to the task. You gave her permission to say that out loud. You obviously have 
good psychological safety relationships and trust amongst each other, which is so important. And that's what allowed her to be like, okay, I might not be perfect at this. I've never done something like this before, but I'll do my best and it's going to be better than yeah. us not being represented here. Yeah. That is some of my favorite memories from like the early 2000s when I was at Amazon and Google, we were doing like crazy stuff that no one's ever done before. Ditto. As a 20 year old, I was like, okay, let's see what happens. And then you get incredible growth out of that stage. So I could talk to you for hours and hours and I want to, <laughs> but I, in the, in the spirit of um, respecting your time, I'm wondering, can you talk me through this astronomical growth? What are some of the biggest challenges that have come? Because quite quickly you had about 500 monthly subscribers and then you just blew the roof off of it. What has been some of those learning curves and how have you handled astronomical growth at that scale? Yeah, it was, it was definitely a surprise. And I think that when I say that it makes sense in the context, but really I was building towards um, like a, a sales marketing growth structure and in true business fashion, like it just happened so unexpectedly and not in the way that I thought that I was, I was heading for like slow growth, ease myself into it. And then obviously the pandemic hit and I thought, wow, we're going to have to be scaling back. Like, I don't really know what's going to happen here. Um, I was shielding, so I couldn't leave my house and I was so lucky and so thankful that we'd made the decision to go to a fulfillment center, because if it had been relying on me physically packing boxes, it would have been a very, very different story. Um, so we just, at that time, I was like, we've all got loads of free time. I don't really know what we're going to do, like in terms of working separately. And I think all of us really just decided we're going to be plowing so much time into this because I kind of felt like that would be breaking point, like who's going to be buying books um, at a time when we don't even know if we're like, you know, it was it was such a crazy time and terrifying as well. Um, yeah. So I think that for me, I just couldn't really get my head around how the business was going to plow through. Obviously, we then learned that subscriptions and postal led businesses were thriving. Um, but at the start, it was just so uncertain. Um, and so we put a lot of time into making connections with publishers, authors, and publishing networks. So we knew the authors weren't going to be able to do their events. They were going to need other ways to promote their books. And so we started setting up partnerships, which were allowing us to grow. So essentially we were offering like virtual book launches with authors, like access to our community. We did a little online literary festival and we saw that growth happen quite quickly. And in the same time, we basically hit that stay at home, don't go to work to part of the pandemic when we were we were in it for a while. Um, and we went from 700 subscribers to 3,000. It was like we quadrupled in size within a month. Within and that a was when, month? Within, like, it was, it was crazy. So there was a little dash of it being the pandemic, but then it was also just, like, basically, don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but, like, shit ton of work going on behind the scenes because we were just, like, I had no idea what was going to sustain us. So I was like, we need to make partnerships in every area because there are going to be industries that are going to be thriving. So we need to be like in their inboxes and making partnerships. And that was the first time we'd ever done like collaborations. So we worked with the Women's Prize. We worked with Penguin. We worked with basically as many people as we could just to kind of create really engaging content for our subscribers and just something that was sustaining people as well as sustaining the business. And it just helped to put us on the map. I could not be prouder of you. My gosh. Oh, just. <laughs> I know so many people with multiple startups under their belt that have struggled and failed with that 
that level of astronomical growth. Like that not only is just, that isn't scaling your business model. It's a completely different business. As I explained to my consulting clients, it's not like going from, you know, five-year-old football into like varsity and then to professional, whatever. I don't know the growth path of a professional. Football, <laughs> I don't know why I'm using that analogy, but it's not just going <laughs> from, you know, growing through your skills. It's like changing sports completely. It's going from football to basketball to swimming and all of it at Olympic levels. So for you to have been able to figure out this model and so fast and in a pandemic, I mean, hats off to you. I so many people have not been able to manage it and leverage it in the way you did. I love um, hearing your vision of like, okay, what are the multiple avenues that we can go through? The partnerships we need, the platforms we can be on. How can we, you know what I think what stands out to me though is not only you being strategic in terms of how are you going to stay afloat, but I saw you during the pandemic thinking, how can we serve our users the best? What did they need right now when the world is crazy? And I think that's why you really saw not only the explosive growth, but the success, because it resonated with what people were needing. You didn't forget your subscribers first. You know, you weren't just business model. Yeah. First. You're still trying to show up and serve them in a really substantive way. It was such a difficult time. And I think going back to what we said about social media, I think it was really important for us to be really real. And I just remember, obviously, like I feel emotional just remembering that time I remember feeling just petrified and I'm such a home bird and not being able to see my family not being able to leave the house I just felt like the business was the best distraction and don't get me wrong I also had the lowest lows personally during the pandemic as we all did yeah. it was yeah. it did not feel so shiny then as it does now but now that growth has led me to be able to have a, a lovely home which I live in on my own with my cat and I just and there are all these things I'm so grateful for. And I'm still catching up with all of the admin. And like, you know, it's like a whole year and a bit later. And that growth provided so many hurdles in terms of the logistics, the fulfillment, everything. Um, but uh, so there's definitely that part of it that it, def- it did not happen overnight in terms of being able to catch up. But I don't know. There's part of me that's always like, you know, you want to celebrate all of those highs. But I also think that. I wouldn't be true to myself if I didn't say that you also have to not have to but just it's natural to talk about the lows as well because the impact that that had on me mentally it felt like because we went also from like 15,000 followers on Instagram which was amazing to now we have 62,000 and it was an incredible growth and such an opportunity to connect with people at a time where we were all feeling vulnerable and finding comfort in books and stories but I also felt this really kind of crippling immense responsibility um because we also had so many formative things happening in that year like the Black Lives Matter movement speaking out about these incredibly um like difficult issues like um you know there was a real rise in sexual assault domestic violence Mm -hmm. all of which affect women really heavily and um especially like recently with you know um the tragic um like disappearances of women those things are a kind of weighted responsibility that I think we do all have to share on our platforms if we've got an audience we need to speak to them but I remember at the time feeling not just overwhelmed by the business model as well but like the social element and like the change that we want to create it did feel a lot I felt like I was constantly kind of putting myself out there and it was just a really difficult balance to strike I still haven't struck it um, but it's just trying to find a place where you feel comfortable and 
Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was a lot because it was just, it just felt like there was a lot of eyes on the business in such a great way, but sometimes you're only human if you resent it a little bit. I never have in a way that would be concrete. I never wanted to scale down, but sometimes you just think, you know, you didn't, I didn't, that was not part of my growth plan and it really, it hit me so hard. And I think that was, although it was exciting and amazing and I wouldn't change it, it took so much to adjust to it and to be able to serve those people in a way that I felt like the product was a reflection of our best work and social media was a reflection of all of our ethos. It, it was, yeah, it was quadrupling the time that I had to put into the business, which when you're working for yourself is kind of impossible. I was already like at maximum capacity. So I think that's where it just then started to affect me a lot in that it was every waking moment was the business and the anxiety of, you know, we didn't see the pandemic coming. What else is coming? What else could affect the business? Is it going to be taken away as quickly as it came? So it was definitely an anxious time, but one that I feel has just built that resilience to the business. And the business is not the same one that I entered the pandemic with. I'm so grateful for how much it's grown. And the what I'm looking at now is what I always dreamed I would have. So I am immensely grateful, but it definitely took a lot of blood, sweat and many tears. <laughs> many. Oh, I just think there's so much wisdom packed into what you just shared. And one, thank you for sharing that because it is a vulnerability to be willing to say like, I didn't have all the answers. And yes, this felt very, very heavy. While it looked like huge success from the outside, which it was, with that comes enormous responsibility, um, the mental weight of it while the whole world is in shutdown and pandemic. And then, as you said, really heavy social issues happening at the same time. Um, and I just think you, you dealt with all of that so gracefully. And you, I think the reason why you connect and probably had that astronomical social growth is because you invite all of us to also be vulnerable and not have all the answers and just feel confused or angry or exhausted. And that that's okay. That's part of the dialogue, especially our experience as women is mm. we are wearing so many hats at the same time. And, um, it was a really hard part to, I, you are a masterclass. Honestly, we, we need to have many, many more sessions together. You're honestly answering so many of my most frequently asked questions, especially from, from women. We, we talk a lot about imposter syndrome. How do I get a seat at the table? How do I get people to take me seriously, especially in the early stages of my growth or my uh, expertise in a particular area? And I just think you're answering all of those. You're hitting on head. Mostly it's just you show up and you're undeterred when people don't you know, give you time of day yet. And I bet a lot of those early people you were trying to get contact with are now begging to work with you, which is oh, it's so, so it's, nice. it's always really weird because I definitely don't, I'm not the kind of person I, I still sit within that very uncomfortable place where I'm not going to be able to sit there smugly and turn them down. I'll be like, yeah, of course. But I do, I try to remind people and be like, you know, um, you know, we, I, I did ask, you know, um, but it is always, it, and the thing is, is, you know, to be totally candid, like many, I would say, I've, I've never not had one of those experiences where it's not been a man who's then come back within the emails asking for a favor, asking to speak, like, you know, asking for us to speak at an event or asking for us to consider a book. And, you know, more often than not, we'll say like, yeah, like, let's have a chat. But it was definitely that kind of undermining moment at the start of the business where, as a young woman, I don't think that a lot of the men at the top take them seriously. And, you know, there are so many facts and figures that I have like stored in my brain about women in, in, in publishing. But one of the most hilarious that always comes to mind is that 
there was a study done by the bookseller in like I think it was 2019 um, of all of the books that were charting and you were actually more likely to chart um, in so the book charts here in the UK are probably very similar to the US but basically it's like top 40 for music except it's what books are selling the best um, and you're more likely to get in the charts if your name is David than if you are a woman or an ethnic minority. Um, there was a, I think there was a percentage attached to that, but it was literally just like you, you stand so little of a chance that just by being called David, people are more likely to commission, publish and buy. And also such an important part of that process is the promotion, which is kind of where we come yeah. in for publishers. Like we're essentially promoting a book for a whole month and that's a really exciting opportunity. But uh, back in the day, that was not something that people were seeing a lot of like, importance on and actually now publishers are realizing that subscription boxes and the audiences that people are able to build like ours are can be a real asset to promoting a book in the same way as a book tour or a book launch um so yeah it's always interesting when those people come back into your dms um but i welcome them with open arms as long as they haven't been mean to me <laughs> <laughs> i think it's very mature of you i too have a i, I also don't hold grudges but i definitely don't forget those who said no okay. <laughs> You know, <laughs> like those yeah. who take a chance or said, come back to me when you're bigger and more important. It's like trying to fill the first season of my podcast, for example. I was so touched by so many people in my Rolodex who I've done favors for for the last decade saying yes. Like so many mm. people took a chance on me when they did not have to. But I also remember those who said no, who, who you know, just don't respond or whatever. And so it, it is... Um, I think you learn a lot. I, I wanted to come yeah. back to your earlier point about making part of your dialogue about those quote unquote failures as mm. much as the, as the big wins and successes. Because I think that those are the times when we learn the most. And, and I, I don't think that's just because the only time we can learn is when we fail. I think it's because when we fail or something doesn't go the way we think, we're more likely to dig into it and be like, why didn't that work? Whereas when something works and you're like, oh, we've just doubled our social followers, we just keep moving so fast that we don't dissect. What was it that like yeah. <laughs> the roof off of it? So I think it's it's um, something in the way we approach it. And you were obviously so thoughtful about dissecting both your wins and your losses and, and seeing what's resonating. Um, as an author, selfishly, I have a million questions I'd love to ask you about <laughs> all of the publishing side. But um, as we wrap up our conversation, one of the most exciting ways you're growing is you're also now launching a second subscription service. Can you tell us, the listeners, a little bit about that? Because I think it's genius. Yeah. So this is, I mean, closely tied with the subject of failures, really, because I, I do, this has been really difficult um, and very uncomfortable to be launching and doing um but we have launched very newly um brave girls book club which is our offering for young well, what we say like young feminists so people who want to in, inspire and empower their daughters nieces students um primarily under the age of 12 um with kind of female-led fiction for younger ages so we saw a massive gap in the market in the you know, the Harry Potters, the David Williams, the Horrid Henrys of the world, they always do really well. But you can even hear in that sentence that all of the books that are so big in children's publishing are filled with male, like young boy characters, yeah. which are amazing. And a lot of children, well, 
really a lot of parents don't see that as an issue because they're like, if your child is reading, that is wonderful, especially in the age of iPad parenting, yeah. <laughs> which to be fair, I can totally like see why that is an option because kids are exhausting. Um, but <laughs> they also are like sponges. And what we realized was that when you look at all the books that are in charts for children, they are all um, either by men or about boys. And that it's very rare, apart from when we see amazing um, disruption in the children's publishing industry, like Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls. Um, it is just so rare that those books chart for, you know, young women and especially fiction. So the Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls were, was an amazing anthology of collections, which was kind of like stories of um, female leaders, disruptors, innovators, um, and that was amazing. But I think that in terms of the magic of storytelling, young girls still need to see themselves in those stories. Again, there's so many facts I could bore you with. But there was one that really like angered me, which is that like young girls are more likely to pick up a book which has kind of either a male protagonist or talking forest animals than seeing themselves. Um, I might have to send you the actual because um, there was a whole percentage in like the study that wow. we basically looked at for that. And it's it's just it seems to be something that just isn't done. So we were we were just thinking, right, we basically need books that matter for kids. Um, and basically those brave girls who subscribe, we want them to end up being, you know, people who would subscribe to books that matter in that like journey of their readership. They go on to read the books that we would be promoting. Um, and so, yeah, that's been amazing. But it's been almost the like the biggest learning curve and the biggest like slap in the face that I, I've, I've had in a while because I think the first thing was just like kind of get used to things being really nice and like yeah kind of you get into a rhythm and this has really disrupted it it's still disrupting it um because I'm not a parent parents listen to parents and that's a whole it's just been it's capturing that audience and getting it right has been a real journey so we started off with literally creating it as like books no matter for kids with like a book and gifts and we realized that what we're talking about was an educational necessity, which is not something that parents are going to buy into if it looks too much like a treat, because that's more of a temporary thing for their children. They don't need it every month. Whereas our subscribers are treating themselves every month, which is like a, like a break from their work or a reward for a really hard couple of weeks. Um, wow. And so we realized that in, in, able to, in order to create that dialogue around it being an absolute essential for your child to read these books, we had to get rid of the, the nice like faff and the gifts because parents just end up seeing that and think that's just tap that they're going to have around the house whereas things that we had for books that matter were like useful practical gifts from independent female creatives it was too completely basically we cut co we copy and pasted the business model and it didn't work um, so we just scrapped it and now basically what it is is two books every month and a 40 page magazine which has interviews we try and include real life like women so basically this month we've been talking to actresses people in theatre about confidence and like being yourself um and like the whole theme was about taking center stage and so we tried to talk to real women we did scientists and like women in STEM and we spoke to real students like people who had taken that leap but just tried to really throw representation and everything we have into creating something that's really empowering um for these young girls still finessing it it's still very much in its soft launch phase, but it feels like it's getting more exciting and I feel like we're getting there. So it's definitely still in its infancy, but I'm really excited to see where it goes because obviously the children's book world is huge. So just to be able to do it right and do it justice, um, I would love to be able to make as big a difference as we do with Books That Matter in that sense as well. 
Oh my gosh. That was so much more in just that one tiny question. I think it's fascinating that the business model didn't work and the way you explain it sounds so obvious, um, yes. but it wasn't. It wasn't no, it doesn't. No, no, because we listened to the audience. We did so many surveys and people were saying basically books that matter for kids. And we were like, well, if it's not broke, don't fix it, as they say. So I was like, we'll just copy and paste it because it just seems so natural and so easy. And it allowed us to create the same logistical. It just it's something there when I look back on it, it felt too good to be true. So I was like, we could copy and paste everything into the same logistical model. Um, and it just didn't work because we couldn't we couldn't create it. So much of books that matter is framing it as an affordable thing, um, which is a delightful reading experience, but you're also getting that level of like essential reading of like, as a woman, you'll be inspired by this story and you deserve to be able to access this. Whereas for kids, I think parents, you know, it, we're basically trying to sell the like equivalent of like a National Geographic subscription. Like my parents, I remember got me like an RSPCA magazine subscription when I was younger. They didn't want to get me the magazine with the toys and the makeup it had to be something that was worth their money. And like, they knew they were going to be making a difference to me. And so as soon as we kind of connected those dots, it made sense. Um, but at the start, it was so puzzling. Cause I was like, this is what people were asking for, weren't they? Like, it's so confusing. <laughs> oh, it reminds me of the Henry Ford quote, right? If you ask people what they wanted, they would tell you a faster horse, but they actually needed an automobile. Like, it's just, <laughs> <laughs> that's what, I mean, you were doing what they told you, but then yeah. you realized actually I need to give you an automobile. And I just think as, as you were describing all this, I just couldn't help but be struck by the incredible ripple effect of the work that you're doing. Imagine the minds, the young female minds that you're inspiring right now to see themselves differently, to read books where they're the hero, not the one being yeah. rescued, to yeah. hear about the journeys of other women who are going into science and technology and doing things that they don't yet see themselves represented in and to change that dialogue for them so that they can be brave like you and pull up their chair to whatever table they want to belong at and feel empowered and like there's a community of people around them that are saying that's okay and we're cheering for you. I mean, you're changing the world. I really think so. Oh, I hope so. Really? I think the main thing is just like, I'm, I'm so proud of it being, you know, when you see your idea put into the world, it's wonderful. And to we, we basically had the moment that I had about the um, like women charting, we've had a very similar moment like that with Brave Girls very recently, where um, a, a mother of one of the daughters who is a subscriber um, was going in to tidy her daughter's room and she saw the magazine open and we have these little bits where you fill out your journal in there and things like that. Um, and inside the, um, the, the science themed box, we had kind of things that you would want to do if you were a scientist, like what you would want to solve, what you would want to do, who would you want to work with? Um, and then we put like, if I was a scientist, I would. And this young girl had written that she wanted to find a cure for endometriosis because she sees her mum suffering and oh. she wants to be able to help her. And this is like a seven-year-old girl. And I wept because I was like, that's just, it's it's going to be different because we're not maybe going to see the, the headlines of like making a difference here, charting here. The thing with Brave Girls Book Club was for like young girls to feel like they could be inspired to create change and that they can do it. And honestly, it just, yeah, it was a lot. And I just thought that was it was a much needed moment that like, this is, it is working. Fundamentally, what we want to do is working because this girl read the magazine, she filled out the journal, like in her own time, her mum was like, so surprised that she'd like sat down at her desk and like written these like answers out. But I think she was equally just so touched that she was thinking about her mum and how she wanted to like, how she wanted to change the world. And yeah, it just, it was 
it was a really incredible, very small, but it was one of those small but everything moments where it just, it meant everything. I can't imagine a better way, a better highlighted end to our conversation than that. To see the way in which your passion, your love of books is translating into the social conversations that you want to be a part of, the empowerment, not only of this generation, but of the up and coming generation to show up as strong women and to be very value aligned in the way we spend our time, our mental energy, where we dedicate our efforts and to be undeterred by not knowing all the answers when we get started and, and yeah. helping people around you see that that's okay. We're all making it up as we go. I think that's one of the things that surprises people most when they ask about my career at Amazon and Google and it all looks so shiny and perfect on the outside now. <laughs> it definitely was not true, especially in the early 2000s when we were making it. But it gives us all permission to show up as our real authentic selves. So I just Absolutely. want to thank you so much for what you inspire congratulate you for your incredible growth and i cannot wait to see what you do next Obviously. oh thank you and it's been really wonderful thank you for letting me chat about books and feminism for so long but it just honestly it is amazing i'm so grateful to have connected with you like four years ago or however long ago it was and to still be chatting and being inspired by you so yeah i can't wait to read your book and yeah i just i'm very very grateful so thank you for having me Thank you, Molly. It's been an incredible conversation. It was really generous of you. Thank you. Thank you.